think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And either they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 91 of The Boys in Short Pants, the 92nd episode. I'm Laurent Carbado. I'm still not doing the introductions. Fine. Well, um, you, you'll, long-time listeners will note <laughs> that uh, it's been a little bit since our last episode, and uh, largely that is because Etienne has, uh, is now a homeowner and uh, had to basically do his entire yard project this year. Uh, which has seriously cut into his podcasting time, regrettably. You know how many um, little things there are to do? I've, I've kind of been learning through this process that there are, in fact, just a lot of them. Yep. Yesterday, um, I learned how to take apart the carburetor on a lawnmower and re- reassemble it twice. Pretty because good. Because the gas was leaking out of the gas tank, or through the air filter, rather. That's really not where gas usually tends to go. No, not, in not. A, that's actually usually where air goes. <laughs> yes, that is correct. Unless you have a hmm. broken float valve. So here we are. I, I feel like I've well, accomplished something very adult in the past 48 hours. There you go. Um, well, speaking of things being accomplished in the last 48 hours, uh, there's been a deal reached. And uh, we all love deals here. Um, and there is a deal to uh, end... Formal House of Commons sittings uh, and to continue uh, committee, COVID Committee of the Whole sittings uh, until the time Parliament usually wraps up in mid-June. Um, and then with some summer sitting days and then repicking back up in September, as is typical for, for the House of Commons. Uh, this was an agreement reached between the Liberal government and the NDP um, and will be taking effect I guess I don't really know what the alchemy of of this is. I think it was as early as today. (laughs) I think it's today. Yeah. yeah. Uh, So there we go. Uh, So kind of big news there because it sort of settles the status quo for the next couple of months. Though, granted, I guess we'll we'll come back to this point. But it being spun as no parliament till September is like, well, we're talking about no formal sittings for two weeks where there would normally be formal sittings, two or three, I guess, um, and replacing them with four weekly virtual or hybrid sittings of the committee of the whole so Etienne, i'd like to like give you an opportunity to get in here before i get to yeah I, I don't know that your intro has quite done justice to what exactly is going on here so basically i i think i'm, I'm counter spinning a little bit against what i think to be a, a somewhat heavy spin in one direction from from much of the commentary I don't sure but i think that just by way of introducing the dynamics we can do a little bit of a better job Sure. Um, Go ahead. Namely, um, the government was in a situation where it needed to come up with sort of a new status quo following the conclusion of the previous deal that was struck. Um, And that ended basically Monday, and there was no deal struck behind the scenes in advance of Monday starting. So we saw Mm -hmm. Monday begin with the government tabling a motion. Um, slash looking, and some of this was obviously behind the scenes beforehand, but slash looking for an opposition to support its motion. And the motion was Mm -hmm. basically the government's uh, delineation of how, I'm going to say Parliament, House House of Commons is probably uh, more accurate. Yeah, I mean, when we say Parliament here, we're really talking about the House of Commons, because we don't really pay attention to this that much. How the House of Commons would function between now and September, what is it, September 17th, something like that, mid-September. Yeah, when Parliament Um, would normally come back. And so it seems like the NDP became the dance partner of the government um, in exchange for the government... Uh, going out on 10 days paid sick leave and promising to try and make that happen with uh, provincial governments because it, it's an area of primarily provincial jurisdiction, although there are notably some... As there's no shortage of patents. <laughs> although notably there are, of course, federal levers. Anytime you're willing to get up off your wallet, um, you can certainly find federal ways to wiggle cash into things. Um, Indeed. So the NDP became the partner to the government. Uh, much to the dismay of, I would say, other opposition parties, primarily the Conservative Party, um, as well as a good degree of the Canadian commentariat, who have yeah. lined up on the side of there should be more parliament parliamentary scrutiny during this period rather than less, which actually is somewhat mm-hmm. of a pivot 
on uh, the commentariat's part. Back when the Conservatives were pushing for um, more Parliament, uh, maybe a month ago, um, before some of these earlier deals were negotiated, a lot of a lot of pundits and uh, opinion columnists and others all lined up against the Conservative Party, basically saying it was you know it was so ridiculous that um, Conservatives would look well, yeah, to and, continue and parliamentary scrutiny the- during this period. Well, I think it, a lot of it was on the sort of public health grounds, like you don't want to crowd people in, you don't want to force people to travel, etc., which I think is like, you know, that's perfectly, perfectly reasonable now and then. I think what people wanted was parliamentary scrutiny that incorporated a sort of hybrid sittings or, you know, more virtual sittings, which is now what we've kind of reached as a status quo and what has been agreed to for the rest of the kind of the balance of what would ordinarily be the parliamentary spring sitting, uh, except now it's bad. For some alchemical reason that well, is a little hard to fathom. So here's here's my explanation of why it's bad. The default position of this government throughout, you know, the bulk of the COVID crisis has basically been to diminish the role of Parliament in responding to this. Um, yeah, and I don't disagree with you, right? Like, I, I think that, like, early on when Parliament was, like, just not sitting at all uh, in the first sort of weeks of the crisis was, was I think, really not great uh and certainly like the lack of committee scrutiny the lack of uh access to stuff like order paper questions like and the fact that we don't have a functioning atip system right now access to information for those not familiar uh it's like there needed to be a lot more accountability i think now we've reached a much more reasonable balance where we have regular sittings of committees uh several times a week we have uh order paper questions that are going through though i believe now there won't be formal sitting days so they're no longer able to be tabled Though, once again, uh, in a normal parliamentary sitting, uh, order paper questions submitted at the end of May wouldn't get answered until September anyway. Mm. And with the agreement there, it's 45 days. uh, And the agreement that is in place right now provides for two sitting days in July and two sitting days in August where they can actually be uh, uh, answered. So I think in that sense, it's actually a slight upgrade. Um, So, but this this is my my point of... uh, so I, there's, there's two things I think we have to explain. Uh, the first is you're comparing against the status quo um, of, a, of sure. a typical year, where yeah. I think the argument of this is not a typical year, we do not need to send MPs home um, during the summer to go partake on the barbecue circuit uh and you know get in touch with their constituents and all the rest of that is is the typical argument for why uh parliament is adjourned during the summer federally i don't think a lot of those typical arguments apply here and i would have been very pleased to see mps slash parliament to continue to meet over the course of the summer to provide additional scrutiny when we've literally you know we've literally spent hundreds of billions of dollars more than several years worth of budgets in a three-month period and all of a sudden we're going back to sort of oh well it's summer summer we all have to go back to our ridings during the summer like so i I don't know that that argument i would say two things to that the first in terms of the spending is that a lot of the spending is like individual support payments that like I don't really know how we're gonna like get up there and like call all the the horses that got Serb uh, to the <laughs> committees and, and you know, question them on their like that to me just seems like it would be kind of asinine. Um, on and, and, like I do think there there should be continued scrutiny of like the discretionary stuff where they're doing aid to industries and like you know is this targeted as well as it could be? Is this being spent well? Is this you know? Like, I think those kinds of questions are important and they will continue to be answered for a while. And importantly, the uh, the agreement provides for continued abilities for committees to sit. Uh, and the opposition can convene a committee uh, if they want. So it, it takes, uh, like, three of, I think, just three members to convene a committee. Yeah. Uh, so it's pretty pretty doable. So I, I I agree that there needs to be continued scrutiny of, of spending and of programs. I, I would say if the government enters into a spree of new programs, well, then we would have a bit of a problem. Um, and we will see if that's in fact the case. Uh, but I think there's perhaps a tacit understanding that the the rate of these things is going to slow at this point. Uh, now the situation has stabilized a bit. 
Um, there's also, I think, quite frankly, that the point about MPs and MPs' offices being pretty burned out at this point. Uh, they've been basically acting as, as kind of frontline service triage. Yep, that, that's uh, going to continue of... to happen. And M- no, and I agree with you, right? But I'm saying that Parliament doesn't necessarily represent a huge addition to their workload. Um, no, and I don't think I'm, I'm. I'm. I think I'm talking less about MPs than I am about staff, frankly. Um, and I, I just think that like the rate of new programs slowing requires less scrutiny of new stuff i think that scrutiny of ongoing stuff is still entirely worthwhile as i've said um but yes i i'd say that my theory of this is contingent on the pace of things slowing down in terms of new things the government is coming up with if, if i'm wrong about that then obviously i my position is different. no I, I think the government has certainly signaled um in its timelines that the bulk of, I mean, there's still a few, I'm going to say sectors, but that's not necessarily the best word. There's still a few sectors outstanding. There's still questions around, say, the airlines. Uh, I'm yeah. sure the energy industry is still hoping there's more to go out the door. Municipalities are one of the other ones that are in the queue. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But aside from those, in terms of big programs, big non-sectoral programs, what we're seeing is actually an approaching of the winding down periods for CERB and other. Well, yeah, and that was signaled pretty actively today, actually, that they're really hoping to transition a lot of people on CERB over the wage subsidy. Yes, uh, because CERB wraps up. I mean, or the fourth eligibility for CERB um, yeah. is queued up through June. Um, there are additional eligibility yeah. periods, but of course, I think the majority will, will go four for four. Um, yes. listen, when you look at all of what Parliament has to offer and you compare it to the very limited slice, and admittedly the slice of what the COVID committee covers is being expanded a little bit through this latest motion. Um, yeah, so th- that's, a, that's a good point because previously the COVID committee was only able to talk about COVID related stuff. Now it's basically... It's basically standing in as, as the House floor. And the, and the government, uh, which I think, is a, a good change. I think very much enjoyed when it could say, uh, Mr. Speaker, this is... That's out of order. Yeah, absolutely. out of scope for uh, this committee to discuss when the opposition were trying to ask questions about, you know... A, a, the, the Harrington Lake secret a house. Broad, <laughs> a broad range Luigi's, of issues. Luigi's mansion. Right, because as much as COVID um, is, you know, the issue du jour, certainly, and it will be for the foreseeable future, it's not the only thing going on in our country. Um, for sure so the no and like i i agree with you yeah there, there are multiple crises to use the price of oil and what the hell alberta is doing as an example like to a large extent the collapse in oil prices is unrelated to covid um yes. so having a opposition that is entirely uh, or an alberta cohort of mps that are entirely opposition unable yes. to ask questions about the number one slash number two issue facing their province seemed abs- absolutely it can. ridiculous. I think in some fairness, in some fairness, you have to look at, for instance, the function of the Alberta and Saskatchewan legislatures over the last couple of months where they have conservative governments. And there the approach has not necessarily been that the opposition deserves to have, you know, a robust say every every day of the week and that there should be regular questioning of, of the well, government. The, I think Alberta has been slightly better, but Alberta, like Saskatchewan has been really has been better. Uh, uh, Saskatchewan has basically been like completely ruling by decree since like March so, with with no sittings of the legislature. Except I don't know how I, I don't know the sitting schedule of the Saskatchewan legislature well enough. But usually during planting seasons and harvest seasons, they're nowhere to be seen. They actually sit like very limited periods during the year. Um, and in fact, the opposite. But once again, you're comparing against the status no, quo right. and you're, not you're the, right. the emergency situation. I, there I am. <laughs> As you said earlier. Um, but with Alberta, it's actually the opposite. Jason Kenney was loath to basically scale back any parliament or any legislative sittings. And in the initial days of it, they were doing like 2 a.m. Legis- uh, passing bills unrelated to COVID very early on. Yeah. Um, yes. So I, I think that is a, an example that substantively disproves your point. No, I, 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 yeah, I wish we had, I, this is one of those times where I wish we had spoken about this beforehand and then we could actually look up what's correct. But my impression is that while you're right, that there was very initially uh, a spurt of legislative activity that they sort of substantially have scaled down since to, to the, the grumbles of the Alberta NDP. So let me, uh, let me put a, f- 
Yeah, I, I think we're clear on where we both stand here. Let, let me yes. put a few more things on the table. Um, that is a clearer picture of what it means to be sitting uh, in a Covey committee um, as opposed to uh, a standard sitting of the House of Commons, right? So opposition tools, and I'm just going to name these off the top of my head, that go by the wayside. Um, today we've had order paper questions go by the wayside. Mm-hmm. Though, as I said with the caveat that, like, in a standard legislative sitting, they would be, by now, uh, largely superfluous until September. Sure, but to date, uh, over the past two months, they have been basically put on ice. Um, uh, they'd gotten several, actually. Okay, a few, a few, they, a few been, squeezed uh, through, but broadly, through. the whole yeah. system has been gummed Yes, because the 45-day the thing is pretty tough. Like, you would have had to have a lot lined up at the right time to get them. And especially with the fluctuation in sitting days, it would have been hard to predict yeah. exactly when uh, you would have had the opportunity to get them back. So, so, order paper questions, major accountability tool, thrown completely by the yep. wayside. Um, next. Uh, screw it. Let's, in no particular order. Uh, SO31s. So a way for oh a big a big accountability yeah no, you can really, not, uh... not necessarily accountability <laughs> but just opposition tools broadly but so thirty ones are so thirty ones for those unaware are member statements where a, a, parlo- a member of parliament gets up and talks about uh, the the pancake breakfast in the writing uh, that's going on this week or they're sometimes used to make statements um, proper question period um, there there's been a a deviated form of question period but it's a little different yeah um so that one perhaps less so depending on how you want to treat yeah and honestly having watched the qp this week that that happened i i was not i didn't miss it let's put it that way you didn't miss for like uh original qp or standard issue qp let's say yeah yeah ex- i i was like oh right i remember why i hated listening <laughs> to this uh every day um late shows yes um which are which are basically, if you got an unsatisfying response in QP, you can ask for uh, a little more time in the evening to yell at the government about Opposition it. day motions. Which is, opposition day motions. That one, I'm, once again, it's kind of like QP, where that is like the front line of, of partisan opposition theater. And, that's, not, not, and I say partisan opposition theater as a term of art here, not as a pejorative. Uh, like, the point of opposition day motions is to make the government and other opposition parties eat a big shit sandwich, right? Like, largely. Um, so, I, I like they're. I'm not against them. Obviously, they're they're very useful and they have their time and place. Um, once again, I don't think that it's necessarily like the most horrific casualty imaginable. Pri- uh, it's private members' but, business. Yeah. Um, private members' business. Yeah, that's that is a bummer. Um, what else am I missing? Uh... Poor Estonian Heritage Day will go unrecognized <laughs> forevermore. My, my point is just that... No, I see. I totally see your point, the, right? And I agree with you on a lot of this well stuff. As well as like, that, all like, of the procedural tools of holding the government to account. Filibusters, like, take your pick. Like, yeah. Like, it, it's hard to quantify them in sort of the way it's, we're it's trying very, to do. Like, because it's, it's a, sort of yeah, like no, the, whole, look, the I, holistic parliamentary experience yes. as it's evolved over the canadian tradition of 150 yes. years 100 percent. it's very much the gleaming chrome terminator skeleton of parliament <laughs> right like it's 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 the boot sequence the like passing bills like operational stuff but none of the stuff that makes parliament parliament and in, in that way i totally see yeah it's, it's yes. even the like having question period as the focal point of the parliamentary press gallery's day rather than yes. the prime minister's um uh cottage side address to the nation right yeah and like i I have said before that i think that it's it's not super good to replace parliamentary accountability with media accountability no it's 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 just a different a different set of incentives very bad um it is not the same incentives it is not and no one elected them fundamentally right like it's, it's it's it is not super super good democratically to have journalists i mean much respect to journalists like they do very important work but they are not the same thing so no uh, so i don't know where we've landed on that if we're i mean i think it's it's a complicated story and like i think that like the the deal as such is not like i don't think that it's as bad or that it is like bad period i think that it, it definitely maintains a lot of the important functions and excises some of the ones that are less critical I, that's not to call them unimportant, but I would say less critical. Um, 
and like i think like i said i think we'll have to judge this on its merits as it kind of unfolds like uh if they go and start making tons of policy decisions and like tons of budgeting stuff and and start spending a whole lot of money uh then i think we're gonna have a problem i think if the intent seems to be to scale back the the pace of things i think that's more sustainable um and that there will be you know and i think one of the bones of contention has been the, the supplementary estimates process is only getting four hours of debate once again like i think that i i see the point here but like the the floor debate on the supplementary estimates to me is not the heart of parliamentary scrutiny of the estimates uh like a lot more of that happens at committee or just like bringing like fighting it you know in the air in the media what's happening to committee Um, study of the estimates what is happening with committee study of the estimates i actually don't know i i I don't know that it's outlined in that motion but my presumption was that Committees are sitting, or at least a, a large selection of them. So I would assume that they're going to have some role in that. But I, I just, yeah, we'll I sort see. of presumed it. I mean, we'll see. I presumed it would be sort of a committee of the whole study of estimates, rather than the broken down to committees, um, yeah. as as it's traditionally done. Um, yeah, I honestly, I'm not sure, <laughs> uh, because yeah, we only have the the sort of language of the motion, which is suggestive rather than prescriptive on this. Um, but yeah, we'll see, and. I, I do think that there's a, a discussion about the, the spending watchdog role of Parliament writ large here that I think Parliament in general has not done well in a very long time. Um, and I, I don't think the ship is sailing with this. I think that this, this happened a long time ago, and I think there's a, a room for a very large discussion about how we can improve that. Um, which I think actually, if, if we can pivot to this really briefly before we switch to our, our other slated topic, the, the topic of the wage subsidy... And parties taking it. I oh, think, yeah. and this, I'm tying this I, in, meant, in this I'd way. I have that, this on the agenda now. Is is that people don't like to pay for for politics and for politicians, but then also don't like it when, for as we've seen, that they don't get you know to show up and do their jobs. I think if you want a parliamentary system where you have multiple parties that are actual viable contenders for government, you need to make sure that they can exist and function like i i totally understand that people don't want you know like that the the wage subsidy is a bad look for for political parties at the other hand though i think political party lays off staff amidst pandemic is like also a bad headline and that probably factored into the decision and also it's just that like they are a legitimate part of our political process and like i saw andrew coins column this morning for instance saying that well they should fundraise more it's like yeah like i think individual fundraising is fine but, like, at the same time, I think the pivot to individual fundraising has been behind a lot of what people also don't like about politics, which is, like, the polarization and the, the sort of um, laser focus on getting people's wallets out, uh, which they do by targeting kind of lizard brain aspects of their supporters. So for conservatives, for example, like, the party is basically at this point just an email list attached to Pierre Polyev's id. Um, <laughs> and I think, that, like, that... Like, it is what it is, right? But, like, that's kind of what the economic, like, environment that the parties operate in sort of stipulates of them. Like, that's what they need to do to survive, so that's what they do. So, I think people need to be a little, zoom out a little bit on this kind of stuff. And and I think on Parliament's watchdog function, it's just that there's, the conventional wisdom is that there's no votes in it. And I think that, like, that's not really true. I think Parliament, well, first of all, it's not true. And second, that I think they owe it to canadians to do that job uh it's like that's the point really at the end of the day and also it sharpens people's muscles uh i don't know if you can sharpen a muscle i guess but strengthens their their muscles at uh sort of being able to deal with um you know the the budgetary process the public service etc if they were to be in government themselves which i think is only to the good i think the more parties we have that are actual like actually able to go into government and be able to do what they told voters they would do that that's a good thing and good for our democracy so yeah just to to say that piece on that before we we head over to the conservative party i don't know if you have anything to add on i that. do i i happen to i i think in the the popular discourse what gets lost very quickly is the distinction between like the party and the party apparatus um versus like elected politicians of that party like the the office mm-hmm. of the leader of the opposition uh andrew shear's present office is not 
in any financial way connected to the conservative party headquarters that's like on Albert Street downtown um and people often conflate those two and see like you know MPs are getting raises yeah, and absolutely. their their offices are going the wage subsidies so yeah very different mo- things yeah. most people i think listening to our podcast would be aware of that distinction but i think that just bears uh, reiterating because very yeah. easily gets conflated um, in people's minds um broadly agree with you i think every part of uh i mean because of the incentive structure of how parties uh ultimately it's mps uh or governments that make the rules for political parties political parties have gotten away soft on you know advertising regulations and legislation uh privacy yeah there there was a list there was a list (laughs) A, a a recurring hobby horse of mine yeah um on on a number of areas but fundamentally everything parties do is laced with um often a healthy degree of uh public money right like self-interest self-interest but notably public money no party really speaks out or is opposed to the not the, uh, the political donation tax credits, which are more generous than charitable donation tax credits. Reminds me, I need to do my taxes yeah. this week. Um, <laughs> you really took advantage of that extension. I <laughs> yes, yes, I still have uh, what four days? Uh, one, two, three, four well, days. I, I just learned today that if I had filed my U.S. taxes, I'd be getting uh, a, tr- a Trump check. So I know. you can you can imagine how silly what I have feel. You done? Uh, that means Andrew Shear maybe is getting a, a Trump check. Very possible. Um, yeah, so I mean, everything, it, it's it's sort of weird to now pick this one out and say like, oh, you know, you're not getting your regular source of income that your party depends on for operations. All the parties should have to uh, pull out of their war chests. If they even have yeah. war chests, who knows what the state I mean, of the refunds are from exactly. the last election yeah. having only been, what, six months ago? Uh, Give or six, take. Eight, eight months Seven, ago. Eight. Yeah. Um, it, it's just—it's a much more complicated picture. And while it is fun to look at parties and say, "Baha, you're getting—you're letting yourselves off easy again," you know, yeah, it's—that's not my inclination here. My inclination no, is to and, be a little more like, forgiving. I think there's a certain, yeah, there's a certain anti-political populism of like everyone should like no parties should exist. We should just elect all independents and they should somehow like get a coherent agenda together and blah, blah, blah and all this stuff. And like, it just like, it doesn't work. Right. Like people have tried these kinds of systems before and they've like famously the U S political system didn't really provide for political parties. And they sprung up literally just within months of, of the final ratification of the constitution. And like, it's just, it's natural. It's kind of how humans (laughs) organize things. (laughs) Uh, in democratic politics and, and, and uh, i think it's we should we should try to make them better and not try to i think by starving them of resources you leave parties looking for whatever life raft is available to them and that's not necessarily the smartest thing either right and, like, it, and it's worth i think if you look at it, uh, you get you get the politics you pay for yes. and it depends who pays for it and it's worth saying at times like this that party apparatus are not very bloated typically they're incredibly lean post-election they're often usually you're talking about like act, a couple dozen of actuarial most. staff like the accountants yeah the person who processes the memberships um generally this isn't going to pay for an army of oppo researchers or phone bankers or any of those other contracted services uh mm-hmm. well sorry not oppo researchers not contracted but phone banking yes um so i mean cool let's lay off the party like accountants doesn't yeah. seem like a particularly good uh, approach to running political parties. No, you got to really, you got to hang them high to pour encourager les autres, I guess. Um, but all that being said, it's really understandable for why this has become an easy political like uh, whipping horse, and why both of the Conservative Party leadership candidates have jumped on it and said, "If I were leader, we would not take their dollars," because obviously that's the populist position on this. And it's yes. very easy when, of, you when you're wanna, not you in charge right of the books. There? To say, all money is imaginary. Well, of course not. And yes. uh, I, I would not spend money on this or that. Not, not knowing how much money you actually I, have. I would not fund my, my children's uh, private education, <laughs> for instance. Um, so, the the state of the conservative leadership race. Um, has, I mean, it's been... And what a state it is. <laughs> it's been about a month um, since we last discussed 
uh, or since we last recorded a podcast episode, but longer than that, um, since we properly discussed the state of the conservative leadership race. Um, I mean, what's there to say? The dynamic is pretty solid. It seems like uh, Derek Sloan and uh, remind me of the lady's name. Leslin Lewis. Leslin Lewis um, are in the second tier of candidates, uh, different strands of the social conservative tree. Um, Derek Sloan is obviously of the much more brash um, and I don't even know how to describe it properly. Um, <laughs> yeah, it is actually kind of hard to describe because at, at one, and like, I, I'm sure, like, yeah. It's very interesting because on the one hand, it's like Old Testament, like social conservatism. And on the other hand, it's like trigger the libs 4chan stuff, which is just an interesting mix, I guess. Yeah, it's not too far off of like Lady Gaga and the Lake of Fire. Um, and Right. Okay. The Wild, Wild Rose Alberta reference for you. That for a second. Yes. Um, yeah so but yeah there, there's a certain there's a certain like 4chan edge to it that none of those guys ever had um that is, is very curious to me as a phenomenon yeah and then there because usually those things are kind of exclusive right like usually the sort of like i like i might as well just say the sort of alt-right adjacent kind of uh 4chan people are usually like much too cool for stuffy social conservatism um and the social conservatives are weirded out by all the frogs <laughs> <laughs> um, and don't really understand it, but it's it's interesting to see those things kind of uh, syn- a synthesis, if you will, a, a evil dialectic of uh, of dumb ideas. Yeah, coming out of rural Ontario. Um, yeah, very bizarre candidacy. Um, don't understand it. Don't understand why it's there. Don't <laughs> not you are not the target audience. Don't, don't, don't understand where the money came from. I have lots of questions. <laughs> um, yeah, fair enough. But that leaves sort of the frontrunner positions as Aaron O'Toole and Peter McKay. Um, Peter McKay has obviously stepped on his fair share, more than his fair share, of rakes. Um, he almost looks like Sideshow Bob. Like, if you <laughs> if you take off the haircut, you know? Like, um, similar... For, yeah. Has done very tremendously poorly. Um, Aaron O'Toole has run a pretty generic, uh, I would say, campaign, a pretty safe campaign. Neither yeah. of the two frontrunners campaigns have had... I, I would say conventional, I guess. Sure. Uh, neither yeah. has had, you know, a deep policy agenda, any sort of notable policy pivot that comes to mind. Any, you know, a, like Kanzuk is the best I can give you of, like, new ideas, but it's new ideas. In Are, the, is he like, running on that again, um, though? I, I haven't looked, I, but I, I remember would it was mentioned my last life time. on it. Okay, very good. Um, so, what what's interesting though, if you look at like engagement statistics and stuff like that, is everyone presumed Peter McKay to be the front runner, but Aaron O'Toole's engagement is substantially higher than Peter's. Um, I think a lot of enthusiasm that was initially there for Peter has waned. Um, uh, I just checked; he, Kanzuk is on there. I I get to keep my life today. There you go. I was I was getting my Aztec obsidian <laughs> knife out. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I mean, it hasn't been a very inspiring campaign. Um, it's can I interest you in in firearms, no carbon tax, defund the CBC, defend the rule of law, and supporting Canadian? Energy? Yeah, like all of those are straight out of the 2011 campaign, the 2008, Like, there's nothing, there's nothing new, there's nothing innovative. Um, yeah, you you know my thoughts on that sort of the the pivot to something like a big society. You are the you are the most orange Tory. It's just pathetic. No, don't say that. Yeah, well, sorry. Um, yeah, the the David Cameron like. Well, yeah, yeah. What I I won't even get it on this. You, you know my position on on David Cameron and and the big society. Um. So, yeah, the leadership uh, deadline has passed. Uh, or sorry, leadership. The, and you, you got your the, mem- yeah, membership, the membership registration. Um, you got been, in right under the gun. I, I finally got around to renewing it. Um, so we will have to wait until August to vote, uh, which is the mail-in deadline. Um, but let's leave that one there. There was one other topic. Oh, let, let's talk political staff and the. Oh, one 
Can we just can I get your your input on one thing first? Is like the Andrew Shearer performance thus far. It's like I think he's he's hung on longer than he expected to. As as a conservative, how are you feeling about that? I mean, and the, the whole performance. I, I think we talked about it in the last episode, and but it's been a I month. Think, I so. think we talked about it, and like my opinion fundamentally on this hasn't changed. Is I think the conservative party should have learned from the example of Tom Mulcair, um, yeah. and the combination of. What not, and its own, exa- what and its own example of Ron Ambrose. And what to do right, right like, with Ron Ambrose. Yeah. Um, and gone in a different direction. That being said, there has been the tendency, and the, the Hill Times had a piece on this the other day, um, of sort of the conservative former staffer punditry class to just harp on... <laughs> of which, yeah, not not small. Uh, no, very, very powerful. And I, I wanted to note this in the, sort of the, the next segment. Um, to just continue to beat up on Sheer when it's like, what what are you going to do? No one's no one's naming a new leader at this rate. There is literally a month and a half now, or less than that, a month of uh, less than that, three weeks of formal parliamentary committee um, left before the summer. The summer is negligible, whatever. Um, like nothing is gained there's no foothold being secured there's no backroom politics wins to be claimed by continuing to beat up the guy who's going to be facing the door in a few weeks like yeah it's just there is no sensible world in which the caucus comes together for a vote next week votes out andrew Shear has an interim leader for for like a yeah, month or two just, yeah it would be kind the of the ship has sailed the ship to, the time to do this has long since passed like it, it is worth just letting the topic die for now and just taking our licks um well well we have our or in advance of a new leader yeah so yeah what i was gonna say that's so a roach theory roach theory well, some of some of this uh ties in reasonably well um so Roche theory is a theory I, and I think you've participated in developing over uh, the past ooh, four years. The, the Rainville Carbono theory of political staff persistence. Yeah. So it sort of starts with an anecdote. Um, when I first came on the Hill, this, this wasn't my case because I, I had a fantastic boss. Um, but what I heard from other staff was that, you know, oh, when you go work for, you know, XMP or whoever it is, like, be expected to work long, hard hours and they'll treat you like shit because ultimately all staff are replaceable. Elected MPs are not replaceable. Um, they have a permanence, but staff, you screw up once, you're gone sort of thing, right? There's the, there's the sense that it's a meritocracy and that your job is in so high demand and there's a lineup of people waiting to get in the door at be it PMO or an MP's office or wherever you're working that you really have to perform to a very high standard um, lest, lest you be shown the door because the, the work environment is that competitive. Mm-hmm. In practice, I think we know that to not remotely be the case. Um, yes. But worse so, it's actually almost the reverse that the disposability in politics that we sort of observe and have quite a few proof points, uh, I think, between us, is that elected officials are more disposable than, I won't say entry-level political staff, but I'll, I will say mid-upper-level political staff. There are a lot of instances of elected officials doing something wrong, uh, be it you know the $16 glass of orange juice or what have you, and being shown yeah. the door for life, um, as opposed to political staff who are caught in their own misadventures, um, are shown the door, go on hiatus, take an extended vacation, what have you, and then come back to work, um, you know, with a campaign or what have you, um, for many many years thereafter. Um, and it's a really weird dynamic, and sort of what was spurred, uh, what spurned it here, or, or our recent conversation about it, was the example of the United Kingdom, and sort of the whole shit show that the Johnson government is going through while trying to protect staff in a way that you rarely see happen for ministers these days. 
Do you do you Yes, and indeed some of ministers have actually resigned over this. Yeah, like, rather, like is that is yeah. that not bewildering? <laughs> So yeah. do, you, do you want to explain first what's going on in the United Kingdom, and then we can draw some sure. parallels so, to Canadian examples? Oh boy, do I get to tee off on Dominic Cummings? Sure. Uh, one of one of my favorite guys. Uh, so Dominic Cummings is a guy that entered my life uh, personally a little bit after the Brexit referendum. Yes, when uh, I worked a little bit on the uh, the stuff around um, the vote. Uh, oh, geez, I can't remember which campaign it was. I was vote leave. And their coordination with a Canadian data firm, etc. So that was, it was a lot of fun. Um, but he struck me as kind of your classical, uh, thinks he's a lot smarter than he is, uh, airport business guy, a guru, political consultant. Um, and he was then, he had served in the Cameron government as an assistant for Michael Gove when he was education secretary and pissed everyone off and made a ton of enemies. Um he has a very absolute kind of like Leninist outlook on politics, which I respect. <laughs> um, I say that tongue in cheek, of course. Uh, but yes, yeah, so critically, he was one of the people in this vote leave campaign where he he rubbed shoulders with uh, with uh, Boris Johnson, who's now the prime minister of the UK, and he was one of his chief aides in the last election, and now um, is like his his Jerry Butts, if you will. Uh, and An apt comparison. He, Yes, very much so. And in the early days of the the coronavirus pandemic and Britain's really bad response to it, he, which he has a lot to do with, of course, he uh, took it upon himself when he felt that he and his wife were getting ill to drive about 300 miles to the northern city of Durham, um, known for its historic university, uh, to drop off his child with a family member and then drove to a castle... Uh, about 30 miles away before driving back to London. He says he drove to the castle to check if his eyesight was good, <laughs> which I would say if you manage to drive 30 miles, you're probably all right. And frankly, you probably shouldn't drive 30 miles to test your eyesight in the first place. At any rate, bit of a bit of a row, as the British uh, tend to say. Uh, and now he's uh, he went into the Downing Street, like, garden and gave a talk at like a folding table about how he wasn't <laughs> sorry and how everything he did was fine and just like just insane shit i mean it really like it really bears repeating that this is like some really absurd stuff and i'm, I'm very glad that in 2015 uh the united kingdom managed to avoid chaos with ed Miliband and instead opted for, for stability <laughs> with uh with david cameron because uh, that's worked out really well for them so far uh, but there you go uh i just want to like as you've said um people have ever well as i said like ministers have resigned over this the the undersecretary for scotland resigned um but dominic cummings appears to have the complete backing of the prime minister even though they've literally pulled this at this point and 70 percent of people in the country think he should resign it's really incredible and, and speaks to the, the power of, of the the rainville carbono theory of political staff of persistence or roach theory as it is better known I also want to contrast it with a piece I just remembered um, right before we started talking about this. Uh, from 2014, there was ongoing by-elections in the UK, and uh, the U the Labour Party MP uh, Emily Thornberry posted a three-word tweet. It said, "Image from hashtag Rochester," which is one of the the towns where the uh, the by-elections are going on, and it's a picture of a white van parked in the driveway of a house with a couple English St. George's Cross flags in front of it. That tweet proved to be just a complete, like, meltdown shit show, uh, where she was, like, denounced all over the media as, like, a snobby person, and, like, all that showed that they were so out of touch with working people, etc., 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 and it was just, like, I think she ended up having to resign, though she has since come back. Um, it, it was really incredible stuff and just speaks to how elected officials are, in fact, way more disposable uh, than top political staff. Because, frankly, it, it is, I think, true that entry-level political staff are quite replaceable. It is not true that high-level political staff are replaceable because they are people who've earned the trust of the people they work for, who they go to on a wide variety of issues and a wide variety of problems, um, and they're used to working with, which frankly, like the friction of getting to know a new staffer or, or politician, if you're on the other side of that relationship is, is quite significant. 
Uh, there's a lot of personal trust in the relationship that has to be there for it to work effectively, and it takes time to build. So, yeah, like a backbencher or even a junior minister or something, you don't hesitate to throw them overboard if they become a problem. But people who make your government go, yeah, you're going to think long and hard about it. And I think that explains a lot of Jerry Butts' persistence in, in the Trudeau cabinet. Uh, well, the Trudeau PMO, I should say. Uh, and probably explains Dominic Cummings' uh, continued presence there, too. Yeah, I, I think that that is certainly part of it, right? The The relationship between a prime minister and their principal te- secretary or uh, their SPAD or what have you um, is a much... A great term. What's that? A great term. Great term. SPAD. SPAD. Special advisor for those uh, uninitiated. Which is the UK term for... A generic term for political staffers. Um is a much different relationship fundamentally than that of uh, uh, one with other elected officials, which is sort of like a quasi-peer relationship, depending on um, who, yeah. who exactly we're talking about. Yes, yes, that's exactly it. Um, yeah. But when it's sort of that intimate, like, this is my most trusted advisor, it basically becomes, this is my best friend in the case of, you know, Trudeau, he's been known to hire his best friends or his closest advisors or people he's had around him for a very long time. And to a large extent, he's never been able to replace Jerry. And I think that is reflected in the government's um, execution over the past year. But there's there's other examples in Canada, just, just to pull another one, where it's similar but a different dynamic because it centers around a campaigner. Um, a prominent campaigner being Nick Cavallis. If you sort of compare the trajectories of Raheem Jaffer as an elected official um, with Nick Cavallis Too deep as a, uh, a campaign manager and sort of their personal life indiscretions that, of course, are all, all well-known, have all made the news, um, Cavallis has been continued to be leaned upon by various elected officials, notably John Tory, um, immediately in the aftermath of the gong show that was Kelly Leach's campaign, right? Yes, and you'd think, oh, but John Tory, isn't that the sort of, like, normal business conservative? Like, why would he... Is- because he trusts them, right? Like, it's it's all personal relationships for this kind of stuff. And and, and if, I have, uh, it- if I have the timeline right, like, John Tory was defending continuing or his, his intent to continue working with Cavallis in the immediate aftermath of Cavallis resigning from Kelly Leach's career after calling... After his Kelsey's thing? No, was it, it was... Part? Oh, it was the cuck yes, thing. Yes, the, the actual trigger point for the resignation there cuck, cuck gate. was calling <laughs> Emmett McFarlane a prominent... Uh, is it Waterloo? A constitutional yeah, political science yeah. professor, a cuck, and a traitor. Um, and yet John Tory, the sort of centrist PC refused to say that he won't work with uh, Cavallis again. And then Cavallis has continued to bounce from campaign to campaign to campaign as if as if he is, and I, I can't say I've ever worked with him, but some indispensable savant with all of the politicians he worked for. They're Do you all remember willing when to put he their neck on the line working with him. Do you remember when he worked for the Jean Charest campaign but was yachting? <laughs> yes. In Greece I mean, or something. That, that's actually good. a very good example is the Charette campaign. Yeah, because it's like, damn, dude, like he wasn't even there. <laughs> like, pretty impressive stuff. Um, yeah. So it's just the and, and there's other examples like over, over the history of time of like chiefs of staff who are working in this present government who once were dismissed by the Liberal Party for leaking uh divorce documents say as like there's just so many different examples of this in so many different shapes and forms yes. though he did nothing wrong there's also like a different degree of scrutiny that comes with it i guess political staff i think prove more resilient um because well they sometimes come under the microscope as we're seeing in the united kingdom um there isn't sustained uh, scrutiny in the same way that there is for elected officials did you know Dominic Cummings was actually played by Dominic or uh, Dominic Benedict Cumberbatch uh, last year in the, the Brexit documentary? I did not. Well, movie dramatization. I did not. Pretty funny stuff. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it it should it should uh, go without saying that um, like the stakes are higher when you're elected. Like it, it is a higher bar, um, but just the idea that uh, elected officials are willing to. Put up with a lot of shit to stay very tight with their most 
uh, trust advisors. I mean, it's, it seems intuitive, but at the same time, in many instances, it's not. Mm-hmm. And that is the, the Roach theory of political staffing. Well, there we go. Uh, anything else you want to touch on? Uh, do you mean on that topic or on all topics? No, on just anything, period. Did we have anything else on the agenda? No, I think that that was pretty much it. And we're at a, we're at a cool 50 minutes, so I think we can probably call it there. This is the the shortest podcast we've recorded in a year. I think that's right, yeah. Um well, I guess that I guess that will do it for us. Uh do you want to talk about uh did you have a, a beverage while recording this? I had a Godspeed Brewery Cage Baby Stout. Cage Baby. C- cage with a K. Cage with a K. Okay. And baby stout, right. I presume, because the alcohol by volume, the ABV, is uh, only 3.5%. Oh, well, that is indeed for babies. So uh, I had a No Fixed Abode, which is a collaborative blend by Revel and Shortfinger. Revel, of course, being a cidery uh, located in Guelph. Uh, it was really, really good, actually. Most it's It says mostly pineapples with a little peri and tart saison. Uh, and... I've been really enjoying uh, Revel's output uh, while stuck at home, and I highly recommend it if uh, you are into weird ciders and other things. And other weird things. Yes. (laughs) Um, Okay, well, I guess that that will do it for us. Thank you once again for listening, and we'll be back hopefully sooner next time because Etienne's yard work is mostly done. Nearing completion. I'm not sure I get all the (laughs) shit for this. You, You were responsible for your unfair share of your schedules. Well, you know, historians will disagree on that. Also, I'm willing to accept your labor on Saturday if you want to come over and... I I will sit on the deck and pass you beers as you... As As long as I get to grill. As as you work. Uh, Do I have a commitment on the grilling? Yes, although I need to look up how to stop gas leaks in grill Oh, the fire from coming out of your front of your grill? Yeah, Yeah, that does seem good to solve. Two out of three knobs are now leaking gas, so... Oh, geez. Okay. We're we're losing burners at a rate of one a week, so... My my apron hasn't shown up yet, has it? No, it hasn't. Tragic. Okay. Well, we'll we'll get a picture of that on the podcast account when it comes because it's uh, it's a doozy, folks. Yes, and remember to Um, uh, support us on Patreon.com. We don't have Patreon. Don't don't tell people that. It's going to confuse people. However, do rate and review us on iTunes because I I I looked the other day out of curiosity, morbid curiosity. None of you have done that lately. And uh, yeah, no no one's really given us any reviews lately. So please do that. Uh, it's quite helpful. It helps people find the podcast if it's something that they might enjoy. If we, um, if we don't yeah. nag you, you're not. So that would be helpful. If we don't nag you, you're not going to do it. Yeah. And then uh, also follow us at ShortPantsPod if you don't already, though I suspect most of you do. Okay. That will actually do it for us this evening. Thank you once again for listening, and we'll be back hopefully quite soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.